Welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity Maine, a program of Agape, and made possible by the contributions to Agape. Thank you. This is a different podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my attempt to demonstrate examples of what I call compassion conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves. And finally, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. Thank you. Thank you for doing this with me. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. Um, the conversation is meant to be just you and I demonstrating a compassionate conversation um, yeah, so that people have a way of understanding what that really looks like. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to know a little bit about you. A little bit or a lot of it? <laughs> <laughs> Good place to start. Whatever you'd like. A lot or a little. Okay. Um so my name is Carrie. I am from Rumford, Maine. I grew up in a very abusive home um, to where um, when I was 16, I ran away and moved to Portland, Maine. I was the coolest homeless teenager at the teen center. Um, and I ended up being a human trafficking victim and taken down to Florida where I was human trafficked, um, multiple counts of sexual assault for me. Um, when I finally got out of that situation, I became voluntarily homeless and I was using IV drugs for about 10 years. Um, in that 10 years, I have lived a very rough life. Mm. I, my drug using days took me to a lot of places that I wouldn't have normally ever went. I, I have been shot three times. I've been stabbed five times. I have been sexually assaulted more times than I could count. I have gotten endocarditis three times. Mm -hmm. I am currently living with HIV. I um, and, and still, you found a way to step out of all that. I, I think for me, my power of no longer being in that lifestyle is the fact that I am a stubborn person mm. and I have a competitive nature. So when somebody tells me that I can't do something, I tend to put all my energy into proving them wrong. Mm. Even if I will never see them again to tell them that I proved them wrong, it's just something inside me needs to know that, like, they are not right about me. And, like, how dare they assume. So you met a lot of people along the way who really saw you as somebody that was not going to get better, that was actually going to die. And you you could feel a part of you that just was stubborn. It just says, I'm not. I'm going to thrive. And you could feel it inside you. Yeah, I think... I think for a long time, um, being as, you know, most people that use drugs are n really 
great, nice people mm. when they're not using. And being that I was from a, I was very naive and I came from a small town like Rumford and I was now in Miami, I believed the stigmatizing remarks for so long. I allowed people's comments and their opinions of me to define who I was. I think and up until three years ago, I my competitive nature did not come back. It's something that one day just sparked. Mm. And I was like, I'm not going to die here. This is not who I am. And you could you could feel I'm not going to die here. It's a spark. Yeah. And, and do you understand that spark? Is that just the stubborn part of you? I, you know, I, I, I can't explain what it was. Um, I can only say that since that spark was lit that day, it's been with me every day, um, sometimes to a fault, <laughs> um, which I can admit. Mm. I, but um, it's, I was in homeless on the streets of Miami for 10 years, a prostitute, sold drugs. And like I was okay with dying down there mm. um, because mm. I thought it would bring me relief. Mm. And I never thought that not using and like having a quote unquote normal life was possible for me. And you, you know that the trauma that you experienced in your family that was so severe left you in a place where you didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And then you found yourself for 10 years actually continuing to try to survive and also a part of you that said, I'll be okay to die. Yeah. And you could feel like if I die, it won't really matter that I don't really matter. Right. And and then there's this spark, this uh, piece that came that said, I want out. Where does that come from? Honestly, if if I had to pinpoint it, um, in Miami up until, you know, um, I can't remember the year. I think it was like 2017 or 16. Um, syringe service programs were not legal in the mm. state of Florida. Mm. And when they did become legal, they made one literally four blocks from where I slept and lived. And the people there that were, had once been just like me, exactly where I was, um, used to come around and be like, I was right there. Mm. And for them to look at me and just like, give me fuel. They they like fueled my fire. They were like, this does not have to be your life. Like Mm. I was there and now I'm here and you can get here. You just have to get up and try. Mm. So you could, you could feel that these, these people in recovery themselves that cared and they, they had this empathy for you. They, Mm. they, and you could see in their eyes that something had changed and they were giving you the message by at the same time, handing you a clean needle mm-hmm. so that you would take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. You could feel in them that this, this spark that they had to, and you wanted it. I did. I think that that's one of the biggest reasons that I do what I do now. Um, 
I can't tell you the relief that it brings somebody to be like, if you're ready, I am here. Mm. But while you're not ready, let me help keep you safe. Mm. Mm. And for me, it was very overwhelming and it felt like a blanket, mm. like a safety blanket. Mm. So like. Yeah, you could feel it too. You could, yeah. you could feel that these these people that were giving you like a few blocks away, giving you these clean needles and they were putting a safety blanket on you and mm -hmm. you now find yourself doing it to others. You're bringing a blanket and mm -hmm. saying, you can be whoever you are. And if you need my help, I'm here. Mm -hmm. and, you're, and you're doing that work every day now. And what's that like? Because on the other hand, there's a lot of people not making it. Yeah. I think, you know, for... In the beginning, I, when I was newly sober and I was just volunteering, helping people. And, you know, I didn't know if it was something that I was going to grasp onto. I, I did it for me and which is a great start. Mm. Um, and then, you know, at some point in my own recovery and also doing the work and getting to know the people that I was working with, you know, there comes a point in time where if it's a job that's for you, the, the doing it for yourself part kind of falls off mm. because it's not for, it's not for me. Mm. Um, it was for me when, when the roles were reversed. Mm. Um, and I, I don't promote drug use, but I don't promote recovery. And I just want people to know they're loved. And mm -hmm. that's all I can do, I guess. I love that. I just want to know that people are loved. It's not, it's not whether they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. or Just uh, can they see the love that comes from my eyes, the, the way I am with them. Mm -hmm. And you started out by, you, you know, part of your recovery was... Just choosing every day to be kind to others. Because it was hard to be kind to yourself. And by just giving away the kindness. And then it started to drift away. It just felt like a natural thing to do. Mm. And you're now at a place in your life where that's fallen away. I don't need to do it for me anymore. And I enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. And you've seen a lot of people die. How do you even keep going? I mean, unfortunately, like, I've seen a lot of people pass away back when I was out on the street using, which mm. is hard mm. because it's like the only family you have and they're gone. Mm. And... I see people now that pass away and I'm just like, if people would have been a little bit more compassionate and loving and accepting of them, that maybe they could have been saved. Um, but part of my, my recovery, my own personal recovery is I don't future trip, but I also don't think on the past mm -hmm. because we can't take back what's happened. And um, at the end of the day, I feel like every person, every person that we lose 
is not only a policy failure, but it's just an extra squirt of fuel mm. on the fire. Mm. It's people that do the work that I do and do the work that we do and people that are out in the community get more and more, I don't want to say aggravated, but irritated every mm. time we lose a community member mm. and it pushes us harder mm. and it pushes us to try different things and new approaches. And, you know, right now we're losing, we're losing 11 people a week in the state of Maine. Um, but we also have, you know, hundreds of really good people out there trying a lot of different approaches. And like one day we're going to figure it out. Right. And one day there will be no death that week. Yeah. And, and you've got a way of, you know, for you, it's, it adds to the spark. Yeah. You know, and, and that you're not trying to go back and say, I'm sorry about that policy failure that, that really killed somebody. It was a beautiful words, policy failure. It's not about, People die. It's about policy failures because we know that we could do certain things. There's a right combination that would actually bring us to zero. Mm-hmm. And at the end, on the other hand, you keep feeling that spark, keep going, keep moving, and at the same time, stay in the day. Yeah. This one day. I think for me, being out there is like an empowering feeling of like being able to like help somebody like I was helped, but it's also a gentle reminder of like where I came from, Mm. because I think as, you know, somebody who has suffered a lot of trauma and I'm not saying that one person's trauma is different than is more or less than somebody else's because everybody's trauma is their trauma and there's Mm. no difference. But from somebody who has suffered a lot of trauma, um, it's easy for us to isolate or have pity parties and fall into depression. Um, So going out there and just having somebody be like, you know, oh, I'm so glad you're here. You know, oh, I was wondering if I was going to see you. It just, it, it lets me know that like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, that somebody's counting on me to show up. And you've you found that part of the medicine for you for is uh, showing up for another, mm-hmm. and uh, and doing it one after the other after the other, and feeling like you matter, because the opposite of the trauma is actually the trauma says you don't matter. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like when you were on the streets of Miami and people were dying around you. We don't matter. And now you're giving yourself to being present with people to matter and they matter to you. And if, if you were to, you you talked about policy failure, you talked about, I mean, how do you see the way? You mean, there's a lot of things, and this is my opinion. There are a lot of things that are preventable. There are a lot of things that people in politics think work, but don't. Mm-hmm. Um, just like on the opioid summit yesterday, 
I did not agree with um, the Department of Corrections coming on and saying, if you've been here eight years and you're down to your last year, we're going to start you on Suboxone. Because when you get on the street and you're not in a low barrier Suboxone program and you mess up one time, they kick you out and now you're dependent on Suboxone. So what do you do? You go back to opiate use. There are just so many things that are preventable. And sometimes I either feel like they just don't get it or it's they're doing it intentionally for this like never ending circle. It's it's almost like a moral discord Mm -hmm. that that the the circle is, uh, you know, we just want to be clear here. You don't matter if you don't behave in certain ways. And it and it takes you right back to your original trauma mm-hmm. of a young woman growing up in a small community. You know, if you don't behave, right, you, then you don't matter. You don't belong. I think that during my using, I could not see a lot that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went down to Florida, a nice little girl from Rumford, Maine. Maybe not nice, but... <laughs> Um, and I am now a 28 time felon because I was constantly being arrested and set up barriers for myself now in sobriety because, you know, in my mental state of like phenomena of craving and just wanting to go back and use, they were like, we could drop this if you wait two more weeks. But if you sign this piece of paper and say that you did it, like, we're going to let you out. And like, so in my mental state of, I just need more. I need more. I'm withdrawing on a concrete floor. I signed my life away 28 times. Mm -hmm. And now today it's, it's still, I'm 32 years old. I've been sober almost two years and I still can't get a license. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard. It's hard for me to find an apartment. It's hard for me to do a lot of things because there's just these constant states of like, you know, people that are uneducated or mm. in their active using that are just not thinking straight, mm. that they just sign their life away. And that comes from trauma. Mm. That comes from me being locked in a building and sexually assaulted multiple times a day. That comes from me being re- um, beat. That comes from me being happen to be a prostitute. It comes from all of this stuff that I'm not only going through withdrawals, but I'm also unmedicated the way that I medicate myself. So everything that like I wasn't dealing with or I was pushing to the back of my head because I didn't want to think about it was now flooding my head. And I needed to mute all these voices in my head. Mm-hmm. And, you, and I love how you say you, could, you needed to mute them. Yeah. And the drugs would do that. And you had to get out there and you didn't care about what you signed away and so on and so forth. And now, because this addiction, this this process that you're in, you know, was so much a part of who you were and what happened to you. Now the consequences, because it's all criminal justice, it's all instead of you had a health problem yeah, and you needed care. There's this moral discord that you were a bad person. You were breaking the law. You're a felon. And now you're trying to find your way out and you get all these barriers in front of you. You can feel them. I can't get a license. I can't even get apartments. Sometimes I can't, 
you know, I have to sign something that says, you know, this is what I did and who I am. You have to expose it to people that you don't even really want to trust and expose it all to. It, it's something that for people that go into recovery, um, I'll use myself as an example, obviously, because I'm not going to speak on anybody else. I'm almost two years sober. And every time I've applied for an apartment or every time I've written to the state of Florida asking to get my license hold lifted, I get a background check or every time I apply for a job and I look like this horrible, awful person on paper Mm. and I have to like stumble over my words and pre-explain myself Mm. at every turn. Listen, what you're going to see is not who I am anymore. Mm. And like, it's dehumanizing. It's Mm. like, because of the way that everything is run politically and like the failures that are made to help prevent barriers to people with substance abuse disorder, I constantly have to relive the person that I no longer associate with. And I no longer want to be. Yeah. I'm really not interested. That was part of a story that I le- I want to really let go. I mean, it is my experience and I get it and I learn from it because the thing that I learned the most was even in the greatest despair of my life, people came with kindness and I want to be one of them. And so why do you keep bringing me back there? Yeah. Why you can keep putting me on the streets of Miami or in the jailhouse where I had to sign off so that I could feel better by the evening. And you can feel your anger. Like you're not going to let me go. Mm. You're going to continue a community moral discord because I am one of them. I'm an addict. I'm a person who struggled with addiction. If you were to try to say something because we have this wonderful opportunity, what would you want to say to the community as a whole? I mean, when I think of community, I think of everybody. Mm. Um, I would just tell people to like put your ego away and like humble yourself because like we're all one, like we're all one. So all these invisible barriers you set up because you feel you're better than or they're less than, like that's literally somebody's child. Mm. You are looking down on somebody's child. Mm. And like I I continuously get comments from people that like go to church every Sunday that they're like God wouldn't want them to live like that. Mm. That's a sin. Mm. And I'm like, and God would want you to look down on people and cast them out like they're trash. You really would love for for people to realize that we're all the same. We're all suffering. And we all have a spark. And we have both. And that when we can meet people with kind eyes, when we can be that person that has a resource that might help somebody, not even the resource, but the, the kindness, the belief in, 
And, and we can do that for everyone, mm. particularly with people who have a substance use disorder. Uh, then, then for you, it would feel like we've done something. And what does Carrie mean now at this point in her journey? <laughs> and if you can get me a time machine to go back and tell me to not create barriers for myself, that would be good. <laughs> um, but realistically, um, honestly, I'm a workaholic, so nothing is ever personal with me. It's always work-based or community-based. Um, and thank you. And I mean this sincerely. I want to just stop everything and just say thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks. That you're, you're working, you, you just said it, you're working hard consistently to give that kindness out in this community. And I want to thank you for that before I continue this conversation. Thank you. And I'm still interested in this. You know, what does Carrie need at this point? I need for the state of Maine to focus on opening more treatment centers in Maine so we could possibly decriminalize drugs mm. and offer treatment as opposed to mm. incarceration. Mm. And I think just, I, I, and I know it seems like something like, well, what is that going to do? Um, on like the grand scheme of things, but I, f I feel like with the treatment centers will come, um, decriminalization, which will come more treatment, which will come a safe injection site, which will just like in Canada will literally overdoses dropped, um, you know, um, drug charges dropped, um, HIV infections dropped, endocarditis cases dropped. Um, I know it seems like it's like just another bill or just another policy, but if we, if everybody who was trying to put a blanket on somebody else, like stopped and stitched all the blankets together mm. and we had like a giant blanket that could cover the state of Maine, mm. that'd be so great. <laughs> what a beautiful image. I don't think I want to talk any further than that beautiful image of the blankets uh, <laughs> that everybody's working on, you know, and you really want this criminal justice question off the table. You really want this to be seen as an illness. It's a healthcare response and that people are cared for because they have an illness and not because they've done something wrong. I think that it's 2021 and we need to stop saying that person's using drugs. Let's throw him in jail because he's a criminal. Mm. And we need to say, why, mm. why is he using drugs? And we know why we yeah. know that it's the trauma. We know that it's the stigmatization. We know that it's the moral discord. And for you, that's that, that you know that. And people know that. And we know that. And on the other hand, we still end up in this moral discord that uh, makes it so that you have to not have a license or be able to not get an apartment or whatever else uh, that would be a barrier in your life because of your past. Correct. Thank you. Thank you for this time, this uh, 
remarkable time of learning about you. And I'll go back to something I said to you earlier. I know you get up every day. I know you look into the community and you're hoping that we could all stitch the blankets together and cover the state and not have 11 deaths in this week. So thank you for your hard, your hard work. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcast. I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to all the contributors to Agape Inc. for their support in making this podcast possible. If you care to join us, please go to DignityMain.com to get involved. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. And take care. Good care.